Bibles, I want you to read with me a couple of verses that will set the tone of one major thought that you're going to hear time and time again this week. I'm just going to introduce the thought and then springboard off of that into my comments for the evening. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, the well-known Hall of Fame of the Faith. One of the most enjoyable parts of the week is the sound of notebooks clicking. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 11, I want us just to read a few verses here, a few verses and some other portions to establish a very beginning thought that I hope will characterize our minds this entire week. Hebrews 11 and verse 13, uh, referring to the folks that the writer makes mention of in his narrative, heroes of the faith, those who are given as an example of believing in things not seen. Do you all believe there's empirical evidence to prove that God is good? I don't. I believe believing that God is good requires you to look past the experiences of life to other data which then confirms that he deeply is. But for many tonight, looking at life directly, it's very hard if you just look at life with your vision to conclude that God is good. Here are people who believe that God was good, and God is good, but not because of the things that they received in this life. All these people, verse 13, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. The name it and claim it folks would have a hard time with that verse. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. What an attitude to welcome future blessings. And right now, the blessings aren't what you want. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. And I think that's important. God gives us the opportunity to return to present pleasures. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. This really isn't a very good country that we're living in. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By implication, I presume the scriptures are teaching, the reverse of what he states there, that God is ashamed to be called the God of those who are living for a city now. Look at chapter 13. And verse 14, forgive the lack of context, but just notice one thought in verse 14 of Hebrews 13. Here we do not have an enduring city. I wonder how many of us are working to build our cities. But we are looking for the city that is to come. Those that have this hope in them purify themselves. The basis for holy living is hope. Look at John 14 for the last passage. You all know this one really well. John 14, our Lord is speaking to people who had every reason to be troubled. If they looked at the data surrounding them, they had every reason to have their hearts very troubled, as many, I presume, here and many that we counsel with and deal with have reason to have their hearts very troubled. Some tonight are rejoicing, I'm sure, and some are very burdened. And the Lord says to people who are who have every reason to be troubled at a natural level, something that really seems absurd... Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. On what basis? Your city's not here. In my Father's house are many mansions, many rooms. I'm building a city. 
If it were not so, I'd have told you. I am going there, not here, to prepare a place for you. I'm going there, not here. God is not committed to building my life here very well at all. I'm going there, not here, to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And I'll take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Tonight's just introductory. We want to just get going tonight. And I want to start by telling you three stories about me. How's that for a study in narcissism? (laughs) I have the mic, you know. To tell you these three stories, you'll think I'm boasting. Uh, After I finish the stories and tell you the points, you'll realize that I'm not at all. First story took place when I was in eighth grade. Eighth grade math class, my teacher was a man named Mr. Wilkinson. Tall, skinny guy, always wore a bow tie. Never forget Mr. Wilkinson. He asked us one day as an assignment in math class if we would all write out a description. Thank you, sir. If we would all write out a description of how we think. When a problem comes up, a math problem, obviously, in his class, but he was thinking a little more generally. How do we think through... There's a button here. How do we think through the issue of problem solving? And I can recall a little bit of what I wrote. I wrote about a three or four page paper of how I thought through solving problems in eighth grade. And what I said was this, that I I like to close my eyes and visualize a very clear blue sky. In that blue sky, I visualize the problem. I see the problem in the blue sky in my mind's eye with my eyes closed. And then I visualize that there is a solution to the problem, an answer to the problem, behind it, further back of the blue sky. And I spend time trying to put myself in a frame of mind to allow the answer to shine through, like the sunlight, the clouds of the problem. I wrote about that for about four or five pages. And when Mr. Wilkinson passed the back of the papers, he said this to the class. He walked over to me, and he said, um, my goodness... Let there be light. And he walked over to me and he referred to my nickname back then in class, at least, was Krabby. And he said, um, he said, Krabby here has written the best paper I've ever read on this subject. How did I feel? Yeah. I didn't think it was that good, but I suppose. <laughs> What sentences have made an impact on you in your life? As an eighth grade kid, that made an impact. Huh. I write good papers, huh? I think pretty well, huh? How about that? In my third year of graduate school, when I was in my mid-twenties, Dr. Ullman, a very prominent behavioral psychologist, author of many textbooks, was my professor for a class in psychopathology. About 30 or 40 students in the class, and we had to write a paper that had to do with um, what, do we believe, what do we believe is at the root of people's problems. And I wrote a paper. The same thing happened. You'll think I'm boasting, but I'm not. As he turned back the papers, he came over to me, and in front of the class he said a two-part sentence. The first part was, 
grab here has the worst penmanship of any student I've ever taught in my history as a professor. But if you're willing to struggle through his terrible penmanship, he's written one of the best papers I've ever read. So now I've written the best paper in eighth grade, the best paper in psychopathology class as a third-year graduate student. Then I can recall in my, I'm not sure how old I was, late 20s, early 30s maybe, we were living in Boca Raton, Florida, and I was doing a marriage seminar at Lake Worth Baptist Church. And the pastor of the church introduced me, I was maybe 29, I suppose. The pastor introduced me with a phrase that stuck with me and appealed to a part of me that's not very honorable. His words in introducing me were these. He said, um, Dr. Crabb has wisdom that exceeds his years. Have you all been complimented in your life? What are the bridges we built, we build to handle the weight of life? A book I read a few months ago by one of my favorite pagan writers, a Jewish psychiatrist named Irvin Yalom, his most recent book is a book called When Nietzsche Wept. It's a rather fanciful novel, a historical novel to some loose degree, a novel of the time that Joseph Brewer, Freud's mentor, interacted with Frederick Nietzsche, the great philosopher. And Brewer, in one part of the book, talking to Frederick, says this. And you'll see how I relate this. Sometimes I imagine everyone has a secret phrase, a deep motif that becomes the central myth of one's life. When I was a child, someone once called me the lad of infinite promise. I love that phrase. I've hummed it to myself thousands of times. I like to say it slowly and dramatically, emphasizing each syllable. Even now the words move me. Nietzsche asks, What has happened to that lad of infinite promise? Ah, that question. I ponder it often, Brewer replied. What has become of him? I know now that there is no more promise that's been used up. Tell me precisely, Nietzsche asks. What do you mean by promise? I'm not sure I know. I used to think I did. It meant the potential to climb, to spiral upward. It meant success, acclaim, scientific discoveries. But I've tasted the fruit of these promises. Then are you not a fortunate man? Have you not fulfilled your promise? Fulfillment of goals, yes, but without satisfaction. At first, the flush of a new success lasted for months. But gradually, it has grown more fleeting, weeks, then days, even hours. Until now, the feeling evaporates so quickly that it no longer even penetrates my skin. I now believe my goals were imposters. They were never the true destiny of the lad of infinite promise. Often I feel disoriented. The old goals don't work anymore, and I've lost the knack of inventing new ones. When I think about the flow of my life, I feel betrayed or tricked, as though a celestial joke has been played on me, as though I've danced my life away to the wrong tune. The wrong tune, Nietzsche asks, 
the tune of the lad of infinite promise, the tune I've hummed all my life. My commitment, maybe this is my midlife crisis you're hearing about. You can make the judgment if you like. My commitment is to change my tune. And I hope this week reflects a little bit of a change of tune. What, what tune are we dancing our lives to? What ability do you have that's been flattered? What sensual experience of life have you had that isn't life at all? But it feels like the closest thing to life you've ever known. And that's your bridge. And you spend your time like I have for 48 years, not literally for that long, I suppose, but all my adult life, the last 25 perhaps, to at least some degree, to at least some degree, finding ways to strengthen the bridge. What does that mean? I want to change my tunes. I don't want to build my city. I don't want God to be ashamed of a man who's working so hard to think through life that he can figure it out and write a book on it and do a seminar on it. I have no desire for that anymore. I think I've lived that way for a while. No desire to foist upon you the illusion that there really is a way to make life work down here. I don't want to foist upon you the, the awful illusion that is so awful because it works so well for so long a time that somehow we can avoid what it means to know God deeply and still put our lives together in a way that seems to bear testimony to our faith in God, but in fact bears testimony to the fact that we believe we're lads of infinite promise. Or we believe we have wisdom that exceeds our years. Or we believe that we write the best papers. That we know how to solve problems by visualizing them in the blue sky. Or that we know how to write papers and think through what's wrong with people. I want to change my tune. No longer do I want to dance to the tune of a man whose wisdom exceeds his years. Let me tell you the tune I want to live by. Maybe I'll say it differently a day from now, a year from now. The tune I want to live by, that I hope these lectures this week reflect, is this. How can we lift the story of our lives into the larger story of God? That's the tune that's worth dancing to. How can we lift the story of our lives into the larger story of God? <clears throat> One thing that I believe has encouraged me to think in this direction is this. I believe I've been driven or am being driven to the reality or by the reality that so many problems that we experience in our lives have no solutions. There's so many things that are going on in our lives that are not going to get relieved. If we live for the relief of problems, we are going to be we are requiring ourselves to live in a world of pretense. There really is no solution to the problem of life other than the only guarantee which we have. And the guarantee that we have has nothing to do with solved problems. The only guarantee we have is God and whatever he jolly well pleases to do. Friends are here this week that have told me a story in Charlotte when I was a few weeks ago 
Bill and Norma Cook, friends of ours and a very effective counseling ministry, told me about their home church where a month or thereabouts they had a series of unbelievable tragedies, including one where a, a young father backed his car out and crushed the head of his 14-month-old baby child. And they said to me a few weeks ago, how do we counsel with that situation? Do you ever feel entirely impotent? I don't know the answer to that. There are some problems that don't have solutions, like why? And I would suggest to you what they believe, what all of us believe, I'm sure, that problems like that are problems that um, they really don't have any solution other than learning to know God more deeply in the middle of them. And when you know God more deeply in the middle of them, the little boy does not come back to life. That problem, that circumstantial problem, is just not solved. Can't help but think of Bill's death in that line. This morning, Mother and I were having breakfast, and Lauren Sanny, former president of Navigators, happened to be at the restaurant. And uh, he came over, and we chatted a bit, and he paused for a moment and turned to mother primarily and then to me secondarily and said, I've never had the opportunity to express the grief that I feel for you folks and the loss of your son talking to mother and then to me the loss of your brother. Some problems aren't solved. And if we as counselors have the illusion that we're problem solvers, we'll never be dealing with the core realities of life. Lots of problems can be solved. You have a flat tire, you can change it. Depressions can be lifted. Anorexia can give way to normal eating habits. I don't question problems can be solved, but are we spending our professional careers, are we spending our lay counselor careers, are we spending our ministry careers messing around with secondary problems and not getting down to the core problems that cannot be solved but can drive us to a deeper relationship with our Lord? Do you, do you feel as I do, as you listen to people's stories up front in your counseling ministry, that everybody's a mess? But then when you go to church and hear public testimonies, do you struggle as I do, and I really do struggle with this? This is maybe one of my major ministry struggles. Do you struggle as I do when you hear people with deep sincerity get up and talk about victory that you've never tasted. And then you start getting cynical and you want to punch holes in their victory. <laughs> you meet them during coffee afterwards and you try to get them to show their bad temper or something, you know. <laughs> you pour a coffee on them, see how well they handle that. <laughs> Let's see how your sanctification endures me. Are people really struggling with as many crazy things as I struggle with? Don't raise your hand, but think of it. How many of you had a lot of weird personal sensitivities surface just tonight in the King James dining room where maybe there were six of you at the table and one of you didn't get included in the conversation and you sat there and wondered what's wrong with you? But you smiled very nicely. Nobody else struggles with that, right? Or you got on a roll with somebody and you were so grateful there was someone there you could talk to. And you felt like, this week's going to work. God is with me. <laughs> I'm no longer a social misfit. I found a friend. 
And you feel just so weird inside, and you feel so crazy. I wonder if anybody's found a way to get God to change the story of their life into the 1950s sitcoms. Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best. Best sitcom of all time for my money is Andy Griffith's show. Most serious problem they had in their town was jaywalking. I never saw Barney fire his one bullet. I love watching this show because I think it's about as close to heaven as we're going to see. My life's not like that. Every relationship I have has tensions. And every relationship that's very deep surfaces deeper tensions. I don't like that. But that's what life is like. Let me read you a letter that I got about two months ago from a friend of mine, a pastor. It's this kind of data which has made me look at my life and say, have I been building my city for these 48 years? Have I used the fact that I write papers in 8th grade that professors know and papers in graduate school that professors notice, rather? That I began a ministry in my late 20s and was observed to have wisdom beyond my years and did something inside just go crazy with that? Did something called an old nature get stimulated by that? Is there something inside of me that believes, I believe the old nature really can be defined very simply, as whatever inclinations proceed from a heart that believes it's fully alone. Whatever inclinations proceed out of my heart, when I believe that God is really not there at the level I need Him to be, that I'm desperately alone, that I'm going to find some way to make my life work. Have I been dancing to that tune all my life? Is it possible that a lot of the IBC model, I hate the phrase, a lot of the IBC model is stained with an idiot who thinks his wisdom exceeds his years? One of the things God has been doing, I think, in me and helping me get over that a little bit, a long way to go, is exposing me to the fact that there's no Andy Griffith shows in real life. Uh, cops need their bullets. Jaywalking's Nothing. The problems are worse in my life and in yours. I struggle with who likes me just like you do. I struggle with irritability that's unexplainable just like you do. And it's occurred to me whatever wisdom I have that exceeds my years is simply not adequate for the job of living. I've got to find God. A letter from a pastor furthered me in this direction. Dear Larry, written October 6th, this last October, it's a night before class, a class that he was attending and I was teaching. I'm sitting at my computer, exhausted and angry. Not at you. I appreciated that. I wonder why I had to clarify that. Maybe he really was. <laughs> a little reaction formation here. Me paranoid? <laughs> Last week, we started a new feature in our staff meetings. Each time we meet, one of the guys has 15 minutes, a pastoral staff at a large church. Each time we meet, one of the guys has 15 minutes to talk about what the Lord is currently doing in his life. Not a devotional, just some inside stuff. Last Thursday, one of my staff guys, with whom I have discussed some of my struggles with life that doesn't work, glibly shared some recent thoughts about God and life. He started by saying, 
you recently saw a bumper sticker that said, quote, life sucks, end of quote. But he disagreed. His life theme was, life is good. It nauseated me. His father was an alcoholic. His wife had cancer and died three years ago in her 40s. He and his young son have been in counseling because of their conflicts. His married daughter doesn't care for the woman he recently married, wouldn't speak to her for months while they were dating. Adjustment to married life is not going well. She has three children at home and two older boys who think this guy is a wimp and he knows it. She won't, his new wife, won't talk with him in the morning and it ticks him off. He's in his late 40s and wants to be a senior pastor, but has always been an associate. Last year, when he put out resumes for senior pastor positions, no one called. I felt like my associate was stabbing me with a life-is-good dagger. His words were hollow, unconvincing, pathetic. Life is good, yeah, right. This is a pastor, a man for whom I have profound respect. So I asked him, in their staff meeting, this must have been quite a staff meeting, I asked him if he would have said, life is good, to the 70-year-old man I sat with last Friday night whose wife had an aneurysm and stroke and died within an hour. Would he tell one of our other staff guys whose nine-year-old son is having open-heart surgery that next week that life is good? Would he tell the woman I met with last Thursday night who confided that she was sexually abused by her father that life is good? Would he tell the man I spoke with this afternoon on the phone whose wife left him after 30 years that life is good? Go ahead, tell me life is good. As I tell you of our infertility and being married to a wife who is sick more than she's well, as she lays in bed with ice packs on both sides of her head and tells me to shoot her. Life is good? He didn't convince me. A lot more that I'll skip and he finishes by saying this, but I do believe this. Life isn't good, but God is. And I believe this more deeply than ever before in my life. Oswald Chambers, in one of my favorite quotes, if you've been to a recent seminar, you've heard it, said that the root of all sin is the suspicion that life really isn't, that God really isn't good. The root of all sin is the suspicion that God isn't good. The more I face life as it really is, the more I hate that child of promise within me the more disgusted I feel by that man whose wisdom exceeds his years, who's committed to a demonstration of that. And the more I find myself wanting to move into the story of my life and the story of your life, not to improve it. See, I don't think counselors are in the business of solving problems. Put that in your brochures. And then look for some other job. The more I want to move into the story of life, not to improve it or to fix what's wrong or to solve problems, but rather to lift each of our stories into the greatest story ever told. The story of what God is doing in this world through Christ, and that's a a good story. I had a conversation last week with a graduate of ours who's a missionary in Belgium, pastor, missionary. And he's back in the States for two months raising money, raising support for his work. Things are going very well in the ministry. Um, but I, and I said to him, well, how is the fundraising trip going in the States for two months? It'll be going back to Belgium in just a week or two, I think. Never had a harder time raising money for ministry in my life. And I said, why is that? He's a graduate of our program. He said, I think it's the fault of counseling in the States. 
I said, that's what certainly occurred to me off the bat. I said, what do you mean? And he said this, he says, um, people are getting so preoccupied with getting in their own stories and staying there. Finding out what's wrong and finding some way to fix it. Finding what's wrong in your relationship with your son, with your daughter, and making it better. And caring about nothing else, nothing matters more. Finding out what's wrong in your marital communication and making that your number one priority. Nothing matters more. Do I think it matters with your relationship with your kid? Yeah, I got two, and it matters. I think it, mar- it matters when your marital communication is bad? Yeah, I think it matters a bunch. I'm married. I think a lot of things matter. I think it's right to take a look at them and to figure out how to deal with our children more effectively and how to relate and connect with our spouses more meaningfully and how to handle some of our struggles. I'm all for that. But this missionary's thought was that as he traveled about in churches, that the final commitment of so many people seems to be growing in the direction of getting God to put our lives together for us. And what relevance to that agenda does the work of God in Belgium have? And as a result, who cares about about giving? I want to do what I can this week to say what I say what I believe and to say what's on my heart, as I indicated. It's the last advance so I can get away with a big risk taker me, huh? What I don't want to do this week, and what I'd like to dismantle, if it's at all possible, is any thought of an IBC model of counseling. I mentioned earlier that so many churches um, that bother with these sorts of things take one of two positions. They, those that evaluate our model either like it or hate it. And um, neither one is encouragement to me, as I've indicated. People like the Bob Gans their book on psychoheresy and their second book where I get a third of it. I've had correspondence with them, by the way. They wrote me to tell me they were going to use a letter I wrote to somebody else against me. I wrote back and said, you can't do that. And they said, we can. And they can. My lawyer told me they can. It was awful correspondence, probably as bad on my part as I think it was on theirs. I imagine I'm going to go to my grave never reconciling with the Bobgans. I get sad. That gets to me sometimes. My guess is I bear some responsibility there. If I were being really honest, I'd tell you I think it's their fault. <laughs> they claim my entire model hangs or falls on my Freudian view of the unconscious. I don't have a Freudian view of the unconscious. I don't know what they mean. But the polemics are getting stronger. I don't want to react by defending I don't want to react by trying to get more people on my side. I don't want to react by trying to get more persuasive and pushing my model and traveling more so I can get bigger audiences and get the model that we think is biblical out there so God's work can continue because we're arrogant enough to think we know how to make it all work. It's crazy. I don't want to do that. I was at the Congress on Christian Counseling in Atlanta. Anybody here go to that a couple weeks ago? Atlanta? Several hands? I was only there for the last day, but those that were there told me it was a great conference. And uh, my little bit at the end of talking with some folks certainly verified that with the spirit and the mood of it. Chuck Swindoll was the surprise speaker for the Saturday evening banquet. And he got up and addressed about 1,000, actually 900, counselors they could fit into the banquet hall that night. And he began by saying um, this. He said, I want to begin by greeting all you counselors. I bring you greetings from Jay Adams, Dave Hunt, and John MacArthur. 
And everybody really went nuts. They did. I mean, it was funny. And it was delivered in such a good spirit. I thought, I thought it was wonderful. It really did. It wasn't a bite. It wasn't a nasty thing at all. It was just kind of a good-natured ribbing that I thought was a lot of fun. But you know why I think people laughed? A lot of reasons, I'm sure. I'm not going to try to analyze it deeply. But the obvious thing is this, that the lines really are drawn. And if you aren't aware of that, then, then take it from me. They really are. And they're getting drawn more. We're getting more of a camp mentality in Christian circles. And counseling is, is a field where they're being drawn today more than perhaps any other field. We don't fight as much about eschatology. I'll bet we have some pre-mills and ah-mills and maybe a couple of uh, post-mills here in the audience. And my guess is if you make that known to each other, it's not going to hurt your fellowship. But I'll bet you a buck that if some of you are strong Adams types and others are strong Rosemead types, and you realize it, you won't sit together at a meal. Hope you don't because you'll just kind of ruin the week. I don't want to contribute to that anymore. I don't know how to avoid it, and I'm sure I'm not going to avoid it. But I'll tell you what I want to do, and I want to do it this week. A phrase I've already used tonight, I hope you'll underline it in your minds. I want IBC to become known as a way of thinking, not a model of counseling. A way of thinking about some very essential aspects of life. A way of thinking out of which grows our ways of moving toward people. That's why you'll find, as you come to IBC seminars and you come to other of our training opportunities, you'll find that we do very, very little by way of uh, two things that you normally expect at a counseling conference. One thing we do very little of is teaching in specific skills. There are no workshops on specific skills. They're all workshops on a way of thinking about desires that haunt the soul. A way of thinking about the Bible and how it speaks to life. A way of thinking about the heart of God. A way of thinking about sexual addiction. A way of thinking about developing as a counselor. A way of thinking about masculinity. You won't hear any techniques that are reducible to formulas because we're determined to do all that we can to allow life to remain the mystery that it is. All of us hate mystery because it puts us out of control. And as we shove back mystery, we shove back the divine in our lives. And that's wrong. We do very little teaching of techniques, first thing. There's, not, there's a place for teaching that. All technique doesn't reduce mystery. There's a place for technique, but we don't teach much of it. The other thing we don't do that you'd expect at most counseling conferences is we do very little, uh, less and less as years go by, and still it isn't a bad thing to do, but it's not our commitment, to um, taking a particular problem and, and spending all of our time figuring it out. Like if we had a, my guess is if we had a workshop this week on MPD that most of you would sign up for it if you're in counseling. Multiple personality. I don't think it's bad. I'm not criticizing you if you would. I'm not saying we'd be wrong if we had a, a workshop like that. But that's not what we're really into. We're into a way of thinking that we hope is going to guide our movement into the lives of people with MPD. I want to have a way of thinking that will guide me in the phone call I had last 
whatever it was, about four or five days ago, a friend of ours from Champaign-Urbana days, when we lived there 20-some years ago when I was in graduate school, a friend of ours called, and um, he's in his 60s, and he has a 20-year-old son, kind of a, a child of his older age, and he was so excited to finally have his boy. And his boy, now at age 20, has been dating a, a wonderful 20-year-old girl, and the girl, about two months ago, called him to end the relationship, and he's been in depression ever since, and he calls me to say, do you think my boy's suicidal? Now, what I don't want to do is give a workshop on here are the eight things to look for to see if your boy is suicidal and then to produce technicians who go out and handle the phone call by saying, I've got eight questions to ask you. I want to generate, if I can, a way of thinking that can release energy and wisdom within me to talk with that man and to come up with some significant understanding that might lead them to go see a local counselor in their area or might lead, even better, the father to move toward his son in more meaningful ways that will establish a connection between father and son that will forestall the possibility of suicide and build that boy into a deeper maturity through his problems. The father said to me, I've been counseling with my boy and I've told him whenever God takes away something, he always gives something better. My response is, that's not true in this life. Oh, in the next life, it's of course true. But in this life, if you lose a job, you have no guarantee you're going to get a better one tomorrow. If you lose your girlfriend, your fiancé, you have no guarantee you'll find the right one a year later and she'll be so much better than the one who dumped you. And with your arrogant spirit, you can say, praise God. No guarantees. And if we have a way of thinking about life that can guide the father to talk to his boy in a way that might lead him to to maturity, that's what I want. 